welcome to The Progression Puzzle, the podcast that provides you with invaluable pieces of career wisdom brought to you by Barrington Hibbert Associates. I'm your host, Michael Barrington Hibbert, and across the podcast, I'll be speaking to a variety of esteemed leaders, thinkers, and inspiring figures from the world of finance, banking, professional services, and beyond to understand how their progression puzzles have pieced together. From words of wisdom to pointers on progression, we'll be equipping you with the skills, practices, and learnings necessary, not only to navigate corporate environments, but to thrive within them and ultimately pursue your professional goals. My guest today is Bhavini Bev Shah, founder of City Hive. City Hive was born when Bhavina or Bev in 2016, frustrated by the lack of diversity within financial services, founded the think tank and advocacy group. She used over 15 years experience as an investor at some of the city's most prominent institutions to challenge the investment and asset management industry and be a force of positive change. She is known as one of the most prominent voices calling for the investment and asset management sector to be more equitable and inclusive, and is a passionate advocate for the power of diverse thoughts and improving both trust and performance within the investment sector. Away from work, she is a mother of two, a devout North Londoner, and describes her neurodiversity as a superpower. She'll be talking to us about City Hive and how it came to life, making the asset management industry a fairer place, discussing work-life balance, and much, much more. Bavini, Bev, hello, and welcome to The Progression Puzzle. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. It's lovely to see you again. You sounded really enthusiastic when you said that, but um, I believe you. I believe you. Now, we're, we're friends. We're friends. And, and again, I think the objective of this progression puzzle is to give our listeners a better understanding of your career path, your challenges, progressions and things of that nature. But before we start, before I start talking about the City Hive, I have to mention your name. I know you as Bavini, and it's beautiful. But when I see you on LinkedIn and other social media platforms, you're often referred to as Bev. I know this is a story you've told many times before, but for the benefit of our listeners who may not be aware, can you please tell me a bit about it? Yeah, so, I mean, it's very simple, but when I wanted to join the city, God, over 20 years ago now, um, I sent out two sets of CVs. The first set said Bavini Shah and I got no response. Um, I was advised to anglify my name so I did and Bev Shah got several responses regardless of whether they were thank you very much we don't want to meet you. So you know we know there has been lack of diversity in the city forever and it's only the last five six years that people have talked about diversity but um, to get that foot in the door um, there were certain things that people of colour have had to do for a very long time. So I became Bev, and then we also know 
that you know your own personal brand in the city once you start building on that you can't really um move away from it so I stuck at Bev you know it I think a lot of people still find it it's comfortable for them to be able to say Bev other rather than get their their tongues around saying Bavini and then the awkward questions around why and what does that mean and and all of that sort of thing so I don't you know I don't I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable where they don't need to be but I did you know when I started City Hive I took back ownership of what my name really is because again where I make friends with people like you Michael who want to embrace Bavini then I'm very happy happy with that um you know, there's another conundrum when when you're a woman and you get married in the city and you have to rebrand yourself with a married name. So I do. I am married and, and legally my name is my husband's name, but Shah is my maiden name. And I'm actually quite happy to keep it because at least with Bev Shah, they might expect an Indian woman to turn up. Um, Shah is a very common Indian name. OK, and, and, and thank you for, for sharing it. And for some of our viewers who may not be aware of that story, it's it's, it's really quite telling and, and damning in many respects. When, when you got your first job, because this is maybe when you're 21, 22, Bavini, the invite that you got for the interview for your first job, was that branded as Bavini or Bev? Oh, God, you're going to have to make me think back now. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Bev. Uh, you know, um, I I was fortunate enough to... And I, I don't know how, because I was never a AAA great student and I didn't go to an Oxbridge, but I somehow managed to get through um, some of the milk rounds. So I did an internship at Lehman Brothers as my first kind of step in the door. And as you know, there would have been filters that would have um, knocked you out just by your name. Um, and I knew from that point that I had to be there. But to be honest, it's I get really embarrassed when people decide to elongate my name and decide to call me Beverly um it's an awkward conversation sometimes with family members who don't understand why I've had to um call myself Bev and so it's confusing for a lot of my Indian family that you know con I'm conscious that you know I've kind of almost betrayed my roots by having to anglify my name and and uh, you know around North London around my school gate no one calls me Bev they actually call me Beanie <laughs> which is short for Bavini, and it's a closer link to my name. So, um, yeah. And, and and thank you, because I think this is a really in, important part of your identity, but also what a number of ethnic minorities have to experience and, and, and go through. And in many respects, there's a trauma um, where people talk about bringing their authentic self to work. And, you know, certainly... Um, in Asian culture, Indian culture, African culture, your name is really important and linked to your identity. So again, that's why I really wanted to spend some some time around that. And before we get into to City Hive and you know the fantastic work that you and your colleagues are doing um, and your day to day role, you you mentioned that um, you know you were a good student, but I'm keen to go back because you're from Northwest London. You're from my old neck of the woods, I think it is, Brent. So you're a fellow Brent girl. So, so, so tell me, did, did you go to an independent school? You know, what were your exposures to the financial services industry, Beverly? To give me some, some insight in terms of your career path. You, you and I both know the demographic of people who live in Brent. It's not, it's not an easy life, you know. Um, 
people come from probably a lower socioeconomic background and probably from more, from more migrant backgrounds. So my, my parents were, um, were not born here. I'm first generation born here. My mother was a refugee from the Ugandan Idi Amin crisis. And one of the things that's really important to Indian culture and Indians um, because of the history of colonialism is education. Education is seen as being the one tool you have in your armory to dig yourself out of any sort of poverty and have any sort of opportunity. So my parents, who didn't have a lot of money, not in the same way as many people who go to private schools do, saved every penny to send me and my brother to private school because they saw that as a way of being an opportunity for me. At the time, there weren't loads of, you know, we didn't live near private school, so I had to go to a boarding school and, um, you know, make the best of it. It was funny because I, I didn't have much in common with most of the people I went to school with. Everyone lived a different life for me outside so we used to joke like so they you know people would go on ski trips and that sort of thing and that was totally alien it wasn't something my parents would have done or even had the opportunity to do and even like down to like what clothes I had there was a kind of a running joke between um, me and my brother that you know I was wearing hand-me-downs from cousins who lived in Africa <laughs> um, which is which is what was happening you know um, so I really understood my parents made sure I understood the value of the education that they were sacrificing their own life, you know, a standard of living for. And, you know, my, my, my father held us to account, you know, when the report card came and if I didn't have a certain grade, you know, he would ask me, you know, very severely about whether, you know, what was he paying the fees for? You know, when I, when I wanted to pick more creative GCSEs in it, um, you know, my dad, my, my dad would have had this lovely way about him where he would say, oh, yeah, that's that's great. That's great. Yeah, you can definitely do that once you've paid me back my sc- the school fees. Pay me back the school fees and you can do what you want. You can study art. You can go on a gap year. But first, pay me back your school fees. Um, and I never I didn't really understand what he meant um, until years later because because I genuinely believed he wanted me to pay back the school fees, hence I realised I had to go into the city or somewhere like that because I couldn't, how else was I going to afford to pay him back the school fees? Um, and it was only kind of a couple of years before he passed away. He, I don't know, I don't think he ever really understood, you know, that what what sort of salaries I, I was on or whatever. And he, kept, he always used to worry about, you know, whether I had enough money. And I, I told him my salary and I said, Dad, you do know I earned this. This is, this is pre, pre-City Hive. Um and he kind of had a tear in his eye because I kind of said to him, you know, and when do you want me to pay you back? And he said, I don't I don't want you to pay me back. What I wanted from you was for you to make the most of the opportunity I'd given you so you would be in that position. And for me, that was, you know, was a real eye opener. So I'll always be grateful for to him and my mother because they showed us what the true value of what things are, you know, and... I just hope that I'm, and I know I'm not, <laughs> uh, but I hope in some way I'll pass it on to my children. No, you, 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 you are. Um, sorry, I, 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 I had, um, that was very emotional. Sorry, that, that really sort of touched me there. And, and thank you for, for sharing, because when we talk about the progression puzzle, we talk about role models, 
we talk about you know you know your you know nature versus nurture and it really sounds as though that your brother and yourself were surrounded by fantastic role models in terms of your parents who who really sacrificed for you to be able to sort of push on and and get the education yeah i mean they were extremely hard working and then my mum talks about or did talk about she's not alive anymore but how you know she got off a plane having fled you know a, a country where she was facing all sorts of atrocities and got off a plane with a tiny suitcase no no valuables um in a summer dress because she was coming from africa and landing in the middle of winter in the uk and the next day um she went to oxfam bought a coat and then got a job you know um you know there's there's and did she speak english when she came to the came here yeah she could speak english but you know at the time you know obviously the benefit system was around but it was very much work ethic that was instilled in my family and yeah, they, you know, across my, all of all of my family, they've all worked not just hard, but like built businesses and that sort of thing. So that's that's always been, yeah, really entrepreneurial and great role models, really great role models. And, and can I can I link this? I'm I'm keen to link this actually because you you mentioned seeing the sacrifice made by your parents. Um, I can see where you get the resilience from, given what happened to to your parents moving to to the UK. But we fast forward to you interviewing at Lehman Brothers. Was that, you know, you've mentioned that you're quite creative. Was there an element for you where you felt that you owed it to your parents to, to, to study more of a quantitative, qualitative type degree and follow a, a path in financial services? Because I'm keen to understand the thought rationale of someone who is very artistic to go into banking. So tell, tell our listeners a little bit about that. So my, so my parents did, they wanted me to do probably what you'd call the traditional Asian subjects. So, you know, they wanted me to do sciences and, and math, but, uh, but I'm quite rebellious. So, uh, and a bit of a disruptor. So, so to, I, I did maths, but I did economics and politics for A-levels, which for my dad was a little bit, you know, that was considered creative to him. He couldn't see what I could um, what sort of vocation I could do because the again traditional Asian careers are all the medical ones you know the holy grail is obviously doctor and then you've got dentist dentist and pharmacy because incorporates the shopkeeping and the commercials um, because there's, there's a linear path of knowing that you're going to have an income and there's security in that or then at least you've got you know accountancy and law and particularly because as a woman they are fine with you know you're working but they accept that you have a role and at some point something might happen to you so you can then become a you know some life happens to you, you get married and have kids and then but you can still be a gp or a solicitor or a locum pharmacist or, or someone's books part-time you know so that's that's the thought leader so but when i was around 13 i think i was about 13 i watched trading places and fell in love with the idea of investing just just this whole idea and I think I don't know whether that's my kind of dyslexic dyspraxic brain but the idea of buying something when it's expensive and selling it when it's cheap and all that you know shorting stuff I kind of was trying to figure that out so for me you know going into the city and investing and actually my grandmother invested you know not not in any way that I would have you know really talked to her about but I knew that she invested in shares and and I think it was that whole 
the yield element of it again it's an income it's security so investing was something that you know I, I knew about a little bit so you know again I had at the back of my head that I've got to pay back my dad I need to have a career that pays me enough money to do that as well as have a life and a lot, there was a big pinch of luck I happened to go to the careers centre on the day when this new internship because it was in ops in at Lehman's was being advertised and I think it was the first year they were doing it so it wasn't the 10,000 you know applicants that you used to get for the milk run I think there weren't as many so I applied um, I went to the I got through to the assessment day I'm pretty sure I flunked the English side of the psychometric tests I passed the the math side and then you have an interview and um I interviewed with this guy his name is Stephen Hodges I actually messaged him recently to thank him because I then I then you know got the job uh did my internship actually got asked to stay on for a few more weeks because I on the day one day one of the internship I was on the guilt um, support desk and I didn't I got bored within you know an hour of shadowing someone and I said can I, I was on the fixed income support desk and I said, look, do you not have a job I can do? Because I don't want to sit next to someone and just watch them do something for eight weeks. And they said, well, actually, yeah, we've got the guilt test that needs support. Do you think you can do it? And I was like, what do I have to do? So I basically took on doing that. And, um, and then they asked me to stay on for the rest of the summer because I was actually doing a job. And then near the end of the internship, I, I asked, you know, Steve and I went for lunch. And I just said to him, um, he, he wanted to give me some advice. And he said, look, he said, Bev, can I just give you some advice? Before you apply for other jobs in the future, can you spell check your your CV and cover letter? Because it's full of kind of errors. And I was like, oh. And this is like when Word wasn't so great with all of that stuff. And and it was it was really, it was really sweet to have done that because I kind of, you know, and I, and I then asked him, I said, Steve, I clearly failed the English psychometric test because of my dyslexia. Clearly, my cover letter and everything has got some some spelling errors that I think it was like liaise. It's a funny one, which has an extra eyes in that doesn't always get picked up. I said, why did you give me the job? And he said, out of everyone I interviewed, you were the one I thought would die trying. Davina, can I, can I, can I just touch that? Because we, 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 when, when did you get diagnosed with dyslexia? Um, actually, really, really early on. And I think I, I was extremely lucky that it got picked up because obviously neurodiversity and even dyslexia is only something that really people talk about you know the last 10 15 years so I got diagnosed probably around 11 officially because I think anyway that's around the earliest they can do it accurately you can get tested before um, but before then they don't know whether it's developmental or you know other things will catch up so um, I got diagnosed really early then got diagnosed with dyspraxia and had no idea what that even was um, it's basically, you know, it's not just called clumsy and un, being uncoordinated. It's, I think it's, um, it's the way you see the world. You know, I see the world in a very different way to other people. Uh, I manoeuvre the world in a very different way. Um, if you ever want to know um, the differences, it's just, just ask my husband about my dish, dishwasher stacking ability. <laughs> <laughs> Look, with, 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 with that in mind, and again, I, I really wanted to provide the listeners and viewers just a little bit of a foundation of, of who you are, a little bit of a flavour of, you know, when we speak, you talk about um, how important your family and your upbringing 
has been to you and, and, and your parents are here on this call because they live through you in terms of your actions, but also growing up as a woman of colour in the city, growing up with dyslexia. I think this is a great point for us to talk about City High. And in your own words, Bavini, tell me about City High, why you founded the organisation and what your role is today. So I spent, you know, nearly 15, 20 years analysing the city as part of my job. I was a fund manager researcher, so I had a the great privilege of being able to get access all areas across the asset and investment management industry and talk to the great and good and look inside cultures of the industry. One of the things I saw was, though, that actually the best performing funds, if you want to call it, or teams, were those that were made up of people who were from different backgrounds, you know, different flavours. Because idea generation, and that's in effect what we do in the city, um, needs people who can spot the blind spot. So I set up City Hive because I have this belief that diversity pays dividends in lots of ways. And City Hive is a think tank and advocacy group. We are all about building a more inclusive investment management industry, um, which will then lead to a more sustainable and equal world. We aren't just about increasing um, diversity within the city, but we're also about democratising access to investing. Because one of the things that we see is that wealthy people have access to investments and investing because they're the ones that are targeted. But the people who need it the most, the most vulnerable in society who should be looking after their financial health, looking after their pensions, aren't really being serviced. So at City Eye, we're on a mission to ensure that all of that happens all at once. And how, how do you do that? It was interesting. I was um, interviewing a company called Real Vision, and they are a disruptor financial company which provides data, their subscription-based business. And I spoke to the co-founder, Damien Horner, um, earlier today, and he explained to me that when 2008 happened, one of his co-founders was advising very wealthy clients. One of his clients made a billion, a billion pounds off the back of the subprime crisis. So very similar to, to what you're doing at City Hive, he's trying to provide access data to ensure um, the ecosystem is fair. But can you elaborate further, Vivini, in terms of how you are creating greater access for you know my parents to be able to to invest and get access so our job we feel at city hive is is to push the industry to do this stuff the first thing is through through our thought leadership and advocacy you know this is this is all new to most firms and industries and 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 our industry you know the idea of diversity and at the moment as you know, the focus is very much on the visibly diverse within the industry and getting more people in. But actually, the bigger issue is the people we service. And, the, and what we do at City Hive is ensuring that we are pushing this agenda, that we are educating the, the decision makers on this and linking it to their bottom line. But not just from the sake of saying, which we hear all the time, diversity is good for your bottom line, but then it isn't, isn't explained. And there's no solutions given of why it's good for your bottom line. We, we tend to do research and 
talk about how it is linked there. You know, if you create products that are based off data, that is based off a different segment of society, you could in effect grow your assets under management and therefore your revenues. You are then shoring up the future of your, of your firm. This is the kind of work we do because the investment management industry anyway is, is, is firefighting. You know, we've got different types of products. We've got passives versus actives. We've got influencers out there telling you you can do it yourself. There's crypto, NFTs, all this stuff from the non-traditional. Um, you're constantly being told that, you know, anyone can do this. It's not a valued profession necessarily because unlike a lawyer or an accountant, you know, investment managers aren't paid on, for example, an hourly rate in the same way. You know, so our job is to do the research and give them the tools instead of doing just to give you an example. There's been several pieces of research on the gender pension gap and all of those pieces of research look at women in society as a whole with those, you know, the usual things that you hear. Women have babies. Women get take jobs that are nurturing and therefore not as paid well. Women make these decisions. Women do this, that and the other. Well, that's not. That's all the aha moments that we have. And we're like, oh, isn't that shocking? But what what we do is we take that and we say, right, how can we distill this? And how can we look at this from the other side? What can we do to create something that will help these people in this situation? Not how do we change society? Because that's a conundrum that actually uh, generational needs a lot more input, policymakers, the whole of the world to get involved. But what can we do to ensure that actually, okay, fine, she's getting paid less because she's taking a nurturing role. She does less hours. She takes a gap because of maternity leave. What's the product that we can create that can fill that gap? That's the way we look at things. And in order, and thank you so much, Pavina. In order to to drive change, so given the fact that City Hive's been in existence for for nearly six years now, are you starting to see change? Because you've mentioned advocacy, you're clearly demonstrating, providing some some real tangible research which demonstrates the returns. But are you seeing that change over the last couple of years? Do you know, I am very. It's very slow and kind of should be you know City Hive actually it's six years since I had the nugget of an idea I spent two years researching um what what needed to be done and and really it's only three years since we've really really taken off with and and the I think like with the sustainability space you will see a shift it will start and and it's like that you know age-old hockey stick that you see sometimes there will be kind of a slow transition until people you know accept you know we're at the stage where everyone's saying they're doing things and they think they know what they're doing but then you have to um there's a stage after that which is the acceptance that you don't know what you're doing and maybe you need to kind of be more open to listen and we're starting to move into to that slightly because things won't change and numbers won't lie and we, we can't afford to get this wrong so there's an element of evolution as opposed to revolution it's a little like teenagers right so we you know when you're 21 you think you know everything and by the time you're 30 you realize you knew nothing when you were 21 and you knew nothing now a little bit like that right okay i love that approach i love that approach it's like parenting effectively 
Um, look, I, I want to pivot slightly and, and just ever so slightly with this. Um, I'm speaking to an Asian woman. I'm speaking to someone who is neurodiverse, which you've said on multiple interviews is your superpower. How did you navigate simply being yourself in the industry? That can be known for being somewhat traditional, as I mentioned before, a little bit rigid and not particularly diverse. So again, in the investment management industry, um, you know, coming from a Russell Group University, you know, ski trips and things of that nature. How did you circumnavigate that? How did you show that resilience to, to really be able to establish yourself for 15 years? Look, every, every, every workplace, regardless of which industry you're in, has certain rules of engagement, right? And how you interact with those rules of engagement are up to you. You know, no, no one is ever going to be completely themselves in the workplace. If they were, I would have spent 20 years in the city in my pyjamas because <laughs> that's my comfort zone. Um, for me, um, I don't have the bandwidth to have different masks. People talk about professional masks and personal masks and having different masks on wherever they are. Being dyslexic and dyspraxic, I just, I don't have the energy to put another mask on. I don't, I don't know what that would be. So I just spent, I took, you know, advice that my mother had given me all of my life, you know, about how I should treat people how I want to be treated and advice my father had given me about how everyone should be treated in the same way. And bearing in mind, my parents came from Africa and have lived in India as well, where there is a hierarchy um, and, and a class system, but they, they've never believed in it. You know, no one's a servant and no one's, the overlord kind of thing so you know the whole time I've been in the city I've hopefully treated everyone like they were a chief exec or or not um and and I've treated them with kindness and hopefully I've been, I've been polite and and that's what I've done you know the whole way whole whole way through I've just been myself and you know that way I can go to bed at night and I can sleep well and um, and with that and sorry to interject Bavini but again but that wasn't enough. Was that enough? You turning up every single day and, and being nice and treating everyone like a chief executive, was that enough? No, because there were certain rules that I didn't know about. You know, the things like um, asking for things, asking for pay rises, promotions, um, the secrets to, you know, unlocking your career success, as you see advertised nowadays everywhere. You know, those those things that maybe get passed on through mentoring. So, so you know, again, it's slightly skewed, isn't it, in the city? If everyone around you who naturally looks like you, you will naturally get mentored by people because you'll hang out together, right? And if you haven't got a, a gang to hang around with, um, who will share the secrets because they don't know them. Also, you know, it makes a difference if you come from a family who've trod the path before. You know, the first time I was made redundant, when I when I was in when I was a trader it was heartbreaking and I didn't have anyone I could talk to or lean on my parents didn't even know really what that meant I mean it was very sweet my dad took me for Chinese he thought that would that would solve it and it was delicious but that oriental center that's reopened up in North London I mean it's brilliant but you keep trying to take me there actually don't you you keep trying to take me there is that the one that's the other Chinese I want to take I I know (laughs) we'll make it happen sorry sorry we digress (laughs) But, you know, 
if you don't know the rules, all of the rules, or I mean, I, I don't think there's anything, there's no secret conspiracy, but if you aren't in the conversation or, you know, someone's telling you this is what they do because you don't you don't look and you don't fit with them then then that's not what's going to happen and it's only now that I realized that actually these are things I could have asked for these are conversations I could have had but and and that's again what we're trying to do through our grass grassroots pillar at City Hive is to get that information out there so people know you know the more we talk about it the more people will go oh actually I didn't know I could do that okay I'm going to go and do that now very helpful um one of the pillars um, that I've, I've heard you discuss at City Hive is the work-life balance and how important it is to you. So successful um, financial services career, startup business, um, married, two young, wonderful children. So talk to me about how you establish that balance of setting up the business but also being there for the children, but also your own well-being time as well. So can you talk to the, the listeners a little bit about that work-life balance that you, you really do um, advocate for? Yes. Yeah, so when, when, we, when I, the two years I was thinking about City Life, um, you know, I'm sick of seeing people talk the talk and not walk the walk, that, that kind of old cheesy analogy. But we had to make it work for us you know, it's my business. Why would I set something up that doesn't work for me? Now, I've got two lovely children, both who have additional needs that needed my support. And I needed to make have the business kind of to work around them. So we set up City Hive by, by basically thinking, well, you know, the thing that's wrong often in cultures is that it's FaceTime and the city loves FaceTime over productivity. So really the key is, is not so much about, you know, pigeonholing everyone in our team that you know you must work the hours I work you know but actually giving them the flexibility to work how they want to and the things that we value are clear lines of communication so you know it doesn't matter if you're working midnight till you know 6am I just need to know what you're doing and if you can't deliver let us know why you can't deliver but clear lines of communication where we are all the time so we've got all of these things set up but also the deliverables. If you produce the work, if you deliver on time, if you communicate why you can't, or you you know you get what you need, and you don't you don't need to worry about the hours people are working. So we generally have it. Most of our team are working mums. We've been very lucky because there is a huge pool of immense talent that has been thrown out of so many industries, so many. And around, and, and this is the, obviously the, the thing that happens with motherhood, right? Um, it doesn't matter if you wait until you're a bit more senior to have kids, because that, it happens regardless. So, and we found this immense pool of talent who hopefully appreciate how we work. You know, we have policies around school holidays that we call them go slows. You know, the expectation is not to have team meetings and do everything. It's a care and maintenance time, because do you know what? Most of most businesses are on go slow during the 12 weeks that are cut up through the year of school holidays because working parents have to fit their five, six weeks around 12. And if you've got kids in private school, 16 to 18 weeks holiday. So we've just made it easier for the team not to worry about that. And what we've found is that we have much more 
loyal, productive team who have a vested interest in seeing our business grow and succeed because hopefully they know that, you know, there aren't many places who will give them that same, that kind of yeah, and flexibility. But, but also it wasn't, and the, the idea around how we work wasn't done really from that flexibility point of view. It was more, well, what's the point of hiring people? What's the, what are we trying to achieve? It's the productivity side that we should be looking at, not the how many hours have you done in the, done in the office? So I, I work around my kids. I do pick up, I do drop off because, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, I will never regret that time with them. I will never regret the two minutes you get with your kids when you pick them up and they're happy to see you. Five minutes later, they are screeching about something and they're a pain. And I know, you know, my son's nearly 10. In two years, he will be a spotty teenager and he won't even want to talk to me. So I will never regret that. I don't regret that. I've never missed a school play. You know, I'm not saying they're brilliant, right? It's no Hamilton, you know, when you go along. And you can't. But I won't miss it. And I don't, I don't think it's part of that whole have it all conundrum, I want it all. But if I wasn't working, I would also go stir crazy. So because I tried it. And it wasn't for me. I'm too driven. But you said, do I find time for me? Yeah, I do. Because I, you know, you know, with having your own business, you know, you never switch off. And I don't. I have everything on my phone. I'm always working. But at the same time, I know when I need to be present for things. Um, I have little hobbies. My husband and I have a little, have a have a routine where we like to watch um, programs with subtitles, like, you know, Scandic Noir or whatever because it means we have to put our phones down. We won't tell each other what's happened. We won't say, what did he say? I didn't read it because I was looking at my phone. No, you have to put your phone down to watch it. So we have kind of little things and, you know, you just keep going. This is the progression puzzle, but you're giving us some, some great marital advice here, Bavini. So, so thank you very much. Look, um, I'm mindful of time, but there, there, there's something that I would like to extract here in terms of that transition for you as a CEO, so having the concept of City Hive, stepping out of your comfort zone, because for 15 years, you went to a big office, big building, you'll look at the, um, the news from Asia in terms of market reports, and then you'll, you'll go about your day to day. Talk to me about that transition as soon as you said, right, this is City Hive is going to go live, I'm the CEO. Talk to me about how you adapted, because surely there were some insecurities, there was concerns. Talk to me about what that looked like as a chief executive officer. Do you know what it was, Michael? I went from being someone who asks for permission, because that's what you tend to do when you're an employee somewhere. You're waiting for someone to mark your work as if you're at school. I went from someone who, who asked for permission, and that was also my early days as signing up as a you know self-appointed chief exec of a little business to someone who started to have some belief because you start to see actually you're on the right path so I went I moved to being someone who asked for forgiveness to where I am now where I ask for neither and I have confidence in my decisions and if my decisions are wrong I'm all right with that because I can pivot and I can pivot quickly and I think for me, it was a mindset thing, the transition. I've seen, you know, we, we run a, a mentoring scheme and I've seen from the mentees and, and even mentors, it's not your job title that gives you the gravitas or that, that leadership that people talk about. 
it's the mindset of can you make a decision and you need to and and part of that leadership is needing to be let go of that decision if it was wrong and moving on so I think that for me that was the biggest part of the transition a lot of that imposter syndrome that you have as you know and I think many many leaders everyone has it actually gender it's not gender specific everyone has imposter syndrome I think that's how you get over it so yeah and 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 talk to me about the You've mentioned through school and at the beginning, embryonic stages of your career, you know, you've mentioned Steve Hodges on the internship, but what, how important were mentors to you at City Hive as you stepped out of your comfort zone? Talk to me about the importance of that and how it's made an impact to you. Actually, I was very lucky to have a really strong advisory board of people who haven't necessarily run their own business, but ensured that we, you know, they've been involved in large, large businesses in different levels, but not not necessarily startups. But what they did is they ensured that I knew that I was on the right path. And so they've, they've all been immensely helpful in ensuring that confidence level. Um, but then in terms of mentoring, and I think, I think you know this as, as, as someone who runs a business, there's only a certain number of people, unless the, you know, unless they're running a small business like you are, who will truly understand what it means. For example, knowing that you go to bed at night thinking about how you're going to pay the salaries of your staff, or ensuring that you've got, you know, you know that you're going to be able to do that into the long term. So for me now, it's it's the mission, but also going, you know, I've got a team of people that I want to deliver to. You know, I want them to be proud. I don't want them to kind of. I don't know, be working for a business that isn't here in five years and have to justify, oh, I worked here, but it's not here there anymore. It's all of those sorts of things. Yeah, and I just have, you know, in terms of the business side, I just I just ask. <laughs> I find people who, you know, do run other businesses and just say, you know, it's always great just to kind of share information. I'm a very open person, so I'm happy to ask people what they do, but they do need to have been on the same journey. Um I think that's why we're probably friends because we've been on the same journey and often people who come from large organizations may not understand the challenges yeah absolutely um disappointingly for me um we're coming towards the end of the podcast but i've got two questions that i um would like to ask you and if you can sort of spend maybe 30 to um, 40 seconds on each one and um we will say our, our thanks and um look forward to, to hearing this being played on Spotify but what advice would you give your younger self given you know your 15 20 years experience and that's a tough one but what advice would you give your your younger self I think it would be about um stop asking for permission I think I would have gone there earlier remembering that your boss is not your teacher they are there because they want you to give them a solution not for you to be adding to their workload. So offer solutions, stop asking for permission, you know, take it when someone tells you off because, you know, you've had to ask for forgiveness. I think those are the two bits of advice. And actually, um, one of the first bits of advice I was ever, it was shouted at us at the Bear Stearns grad scheme, but someone walked into the room, whoever it was, some some great man apparently, um, and shouted at everyone and asked, what's your value add? And I didn't know what that meant at the time. But I think that's what I would say to myself is just remember everything you do. Does it add value? You know, are you adding value and does it add value? Because, you know, look, you know what? 
we all end up in doing tasks and in a million meetings which had zero value so why are we there so listeners um the the advice is to ask questions know your value add and and finally what is the one thing in the city that you think must change greenwashing let's start looking at things that companies say they're doing and putting it against what they're actually doing that goes for diversity it goes for everything to do with sustainability and ESG and then we'll start to see people living their values um, that they talk about in their cultures I would like to thank my incredible guest today CEO of City High Pavini Shah I would like to say to our listeners this podcast will be available um, on Spotify please download and I look forward to seeing you all again on the next session of the progression puzzle Thank you so much for your time and thank you so much, Bhavini Shah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Progression Puzzle, brought to you by Barrington Hibbert Associates. If you enjoyed this episode, which I truly hope you have, please be sure to subscribe, like and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the show. For more information on how Barrington Hibberts can help you to maximise the power of difference, head over to www.barringtonhibbert.com. Join us next time for more pieces of the progression puzzle.